1: Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. All through this Gospel, John is driving us toward belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. Would you take your Bibles and with me turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, I'm going to start reading at verse 12, and I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. John chapter 12, verse 50. Let's remember as we hear this, this is God's word. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I've um, titled this sermon, a mystifying king because of how many ways Christ Jesus mystifies people in the text. We all know what a king is supposed to look like, don't we? Kent Hughes gives us a great example. Here's what he says. He says that on December 4, 1977, in the capital of the Central African Empire, the world press witnessed the coronation of his imperial majesty, Bokassa I. The price tag for the event, which was designed by uh, French designer Oliver Bryce, was $20 million. It was one-third of the budget of the nation for that year spent on the coronation of the emperor. At 10.10 10 a.m. that morning, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of His Majesty. The procession began with eight of Bokassa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpets to their seats. They were followed by Bocasa II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with a gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow directly to the left of the throne. Catherine followed, who was the favorite of Bocasa's nine wives. She was wearing a gown, which in today's dollars would cost over a quarter of a million dollars. It was strewn with pearls that she herself had picked out. And the emperor arrived in a gold eagle bedecked imperial coach, drawn by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. He wore a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by the Roman consuls of old. It was supposed to be a symbol of the favor of the gods. They called it the sacred march as he made his way to the throne. And as it reached its conclusion, Bokassa seated himself on his two and a half million dollar throne, took his gold laurel wreath off, and then as Napoleon had done 173 years before, he took off his two and a half million dollar crown, which was topped with an an 80-carat diamond and placed it upon his son's head, demonstrating that this was the line of succession which would follow. Bocasa attempted to justify this lavish spending. Again, it was a full third of the country's budget for the year, including all of the aid that France had sent to them. He attempted to justify it by saying that such an ostentatious coronation would bring the government legitimacy in the eyes of the broader world. And it's not really a poor argument to think that that might bring bring legitimacy. The nations and the people of the world prize things on display on December 4, 1977. What we don't tend to prize is the far greater power of the one whose coronation we just read this morning from John chapter 12. His coronation demonstrated the way of humility... A coronation that led to a cross. A kingdom that has no end yet is demonstrated today in this passing away world in ways that seem weak to the world. And the story that we just read mystified all sorts of people, including Jesus' own disciples, who have a hard time understanding all throughout, but here in John chapter 12 as well. As Jesus knows he's going to die and talks about it, Surrounded by these crowds who are singing praise to his name, he gives to us a picture of a king who is genuinely mystifying. And so as we walk through the text, we're going to take a look at the way that certain parts of the crowd respond to him and we'll end by talking about Christ Jesus himself. We'll start by talking about the confused disciples and we'll move on to the searching Greeks, then the unbelieving people, and we'll conclude by talking about this mystifying king, Christ Jesus, and the invitation to follow him.
0: Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com.
1: And now, more from Pastor Derek in our series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. We pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, there are these confused disciples. And as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, everything begins as a proper coronation, even if it's a less expensive one, a budget one, when considered in the uh, context of Bokassa's. The crowd realizes who Jesus is and they quote a psalm of kingship and coronation at Christ Jesus. They cut palm branches off trees and lay them at his feet. They take their own cloaks and set them on the ground, all in an effort to pay homage to the king, the king of Israel. They cry out, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Several generations before this had taken place, Israel had been uh, under the authority and power of an invading group of people, the Greeks at that particular time, or certain parts of the Greeks. And, and worship of the one true God had been outlawed within Israel until one person had arisen from the midst of the people of Israel, someone named Judas Maccabeus or Judas the Hammer. He had led an army of the people of Israel to overthrow this, uh, this occupying force. He cleansed the temple. He renewed temple worship, daily sacrifices. And as he was crowned king... The histories tell us that the people of Israel quoted this exact same psalm at him as he went to his coronation in Jerusalem to become king over Israel. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it seems as though there's the same sort of anticipation for Jesus Just like that dude did it. Just like Judas Maccabeus did it some generations ago. Jesus is now going to come into Israel. He's going to put together an army. The Romans are going to be gone. We're going to have restored temple worship. We're going to have our restored pride of place. We're going to have our country again. And some of that is indicated by the fact that they call him the king of Israel. Even the king of Israel is what they cry out to him. But Jesus, from the get-go, mystifies. He rides a donkey. Now, this wasn't entirely without precedent. In First Kings one we we're told that Solomon rode a donkey to his coronation. But it certainly broke broader tradition that would have taken place from all the kings that surrounded the people of Israel. If you were going to a coronation, you would do it like Bokassa did, or at least riding on a majestic warhorse, demonstrating your power and ferocity in battle. Because if you were to ride a warhorse in battle, you would be feared. But as Tim Keller notes, if, if you were to ride a colt of a donkey into battle there's no doubt that you'd be slaughtered. And so Jesus rides on a donkey's colt, fulfilling prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And the crowd sees this, and they go bananas for Jesus. They are so all about this to the point where the Pharisees are devastated, and they're like, look at this. The whole world's gone after him. We're losing. Now, one of the intriguing things in all of this is we're told that the Disciples of Jesus just don't understand what's taking place. They don't understand what's going on here. They they lack understanding. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I'm grateful that throughout the Gospel of John, the disciples seem to be so slow to understand my own hard-headedness and confusion. I'm grateful that there's there's precedent. I'm not the first hard-headed, confused disciple of the Lord Jesus. I won't be the last. They don't get it. Something interesting is told to us in the text here. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't understand this fulfillment of prophecy, what this meant, what was going on. Verse 16 continues on, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd wants another Judas Maccabeus. They want a king of Israel, verse 13. And the disciples just don't get any of it. They don't get any of it but they understand after the resurrection. The truth is that the only way that a follower of Jesus can make sense of the kingship of Jesus is in the light of the cross and the resurrection. So often we today, just like the disciples, we want Jesus to make sense to us. We want the kind of kingship that would make sense to other people. We want to follow the kind of king that would be attractive to the unregenerate heart and mind. We want the sort of king that doesn't call us to very much, but gives us a great deal. We want the sort of king that Israel was anticipating here as Jesus comes into the city. The only way that we will be able to make sense of the kingship of Christ Jesus is if we see him in the power and the glory, and the humility of his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. There are probably going to be all sorts of times where you don't understand in the course of your life. There are times that we forget about the cross and the resurrection, which gives every part of our life meaning, which gives every part of the world meaning. It gives your sufferings meaning. It gives your loss meaning. You and I miss who Jesus is, because sometimes we forget the cross and the resurrection, and the fact that his kingdom is not of this world. And so if we would have understanding, it has to be strained through the cross and the resurrection. And having mystified his disciples, they're mystifying words that he speaks to the Greeks. So the Greeks come, and they want the very best thing. They want simply to see Jesus. Their request that they give to Philip when they come into the city and they see all of the celebrations is the best possible request. Some of it might be that that the Greeks don't have sort of the, the kingship expectations or hopes that the people of Israel would have had. And so as they come and they see Philip, they're like, the only thing that we want is to see Jesus. Man, what a great request. Now, if I understand the story correctly... Uh, Andy Camingo, when he was the pastor of Escondido Christian Reformed Church and then Escondido United Reformed Church, put on the pulpit this verse, just one verse. It just said, sir, we would see Jesus. When I was interning there, it was still on the pulpit years later. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. A reminder that this is the call of every faithful Christian pastor, to help people see Jesus, to make him known. It's the call, frankly, of every faithful Christian church to make Jesus known. It's the call of every Christian to make Jesus known. We would see Jesus. We want to see him. Honestly, part of my regular prayer is that the uh, arc of my own ministry in the pulpit here would be that people are like, we saw Jesus. When he preached, we saw Jesus. If that could be said, then that is enough for me. This simple phrase from the Greeks... Should be the hope of your life. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Psalm 27, verse 4 says, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. All I want is to see Jesus. It's the hope of my life. So the Greeks, have this beautiful request and Philip takes them to Jesus and Jesus speaks to them and he does not give them the kind of words that we might expect. This one who is being celebrated by all the surrounding crowds, we might expect to be like, all right, you can see it's all coming together. Now you guys want to get in line. I'm about to go and sit on that throne in Jerusalem. No, he, he gives them something that is, it's not, it's not secret sensitive. At least he tells them, all right, so they come to him and then he just tells them, you need to die. Did you see that? It's it's a mystifying statement from Jesus, but it's what he says. So it starts maybe the way that we might expect. The Greeks want to see him. Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now that is, that's a surprise. All right. Hey, Greeks, you've come to, to meet me. Let me give you a message. You need to die And only if you die are you gonna bear any fruit. Only if you die is your life going to have any kind of meaning. Okay, you wanna be a part of my kingdom? (coughs) Die. And this isn't like, this isn't an insult. It's not, oh, Greeks, why don't you go away from me and die? This is an invitation. This is an invitation to them because just a few verses later he's going to talk about how he's going to be lifted up. And when he's lifted up, he's speaking of his crucifixion. He's going to draw all people to himself. He's still speaking to the Greeks who have drawn near. He's talking about how he wants to draw them near to him. And so these aren't words of go away. These are words of like come near. And the way that you do it is that you die. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is so unlike this world that you need to die to the things of this world in order to be a part of a kingdom that is enduring. Unless a seed of grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Whoever comes to the Lord Jesus, Jesus bids to come and die. There's no other way. It isn't simply giving mental agreement to the Lord Jesus like you've come to proper understanding and you agree. It isn't simply feeling a certain sort of way about Jesus. It's not that you now feel good about him and his message. It's dying to the ways of the world. And finding that the only way to really live is to die to self and power and reputation and glory. And instead, follow the humble king. But don't don't make any mistake that in this invitation to die, Jesus is inviting them in. That's verse 32. I'm going to draw all people to myself, he says. But with this call to die, this is a hard word. And the response of the people uh, is unbelief. And that's what we're told in verses 36 and following. There's the heading, the unbelief of the people. And right underneath it, we're told in verse 37 that though he, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It's this thread that's run through John so far for us that that some believe but but some don't and and this alternating between belief and, and unbelief and disbelief just continues to be a theme and here as the crowd has approached him and has been crying out for a certain kind of king and he's kind of demonstrating that he's not going to give to them what they want cuz he's going to be crucified and died and he's not just going to be the king of Israel he's going to draw Greeks in as well gentiles like you and me who who aren't a part of this 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 people that God had established as he talks about all this the response is unbelief it's unbelief it's not a surprise It had been prophesied by Isaiah generations and generations before. And John quotes it. Isaiah saw that this unbelief would take place. He prophesied about Jesus. He saw the glory that was going to come. And he knew that people were going to be in the midst of that glory and still not believe. And what makes the unbelief all the more surprising is that as Jesus continues on the road into Jerusalem, God actually speaks. He actually speaks a word from heaven. And he says to Jesus, I've glorified your name and I will glorify it again. The Father has been glorifying the son through his earthly ministry and he will glorify him again through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave. This is all going to be what God is going to do. God speaks from heaven and still the response of people is unbelief. I don't know about you, but but one of the things that I have heard regularly when I've talked to different friends about the need for them to trust in Jesus is I've heard from people, you know what? I don't know if there's a God, if he would speak I would believe it. But since he's never spoken audibly to me, I don't believe it. The the astounding thing about John chapter 12 is this, is that God audibly speaks And the way that a number of people respond is, that was probably just thunder. There's probably just a thunderclap. It's sunny outside. It's weird, just boom of thunder. That's all it is. Unbelief can be so persistent in our hearts that even if God speaks, some people don't believe you know what else is crazy? So persistent can be our unbelief that at times people can know that God came to earth actually like lived among us took on human flesh and told everyone that he was God in the flesh and that if they trusted in him, that they'd be brought from death to life. And and in the course of his ministry, he said, I'm going to die, but I won't stay dead. I'm going to rise again from the dead and that's going to testify to the fact that I am God and and you'll be able to believe and trust in me. Do you know that there are some people who see that that's the case and still don't believe that God came to earth and died and rose again and, and it's still not enough? Do you know that sometimes those people are you and me? We doubt, despite hearing the better word of Christ Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Man, unbelief can be so persistent. And so one of the things that we're invited to do is to pray for the kind of heart that is willing to serve Jesus. Because every one of us have had our souls shaped by this country and this passing away world. All of us have been discipled in ways that we recognize and in many that we don't, that are so fundamental that we just assume these sorts of things. We've been having our souls shaped by democratic, egalitarian capitalism, the system in which we live. We've, Whether we want to or not have had our souls shaped that the fundamental goods of life would be life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, rather than dying to self and becoming a slave to Christ Jesus and seeking the good of other people. Because we've been so discipled by the broader world, whether we recognize it or not, unbelief can be persistent. But it's also a cause for rejoicing this morning because if you are here this morning, are watching this morning, and you trust in Jesus Christ, the reality of your conversion is a miracle. Unbelief is one of the most persistent things in the world. And if you trust in Jesus, and you know that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead were for you... And praise God, because a miracle has happened in your life. And the only one who can accomplish that is God himself who raises the dead.
0: You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life, Visit us today at GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema,
1: and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, may God bless you.